Greetings. Happy New Year. We pray that all of you have had a restful Christmas holiday and are looking forward with us to a wonderful 2024. In 2023, we experienced the most eventful, challenging, and productive year in our memory. We can compare ourselves to vessels that have been turned upside down and thoroughly shaken until the last drops have been poured out for God's people and God's purpose. This year was full of unprecedented projects, such as redesigning and then constructing the new cafe in 17 weeks. And later, we decided to take on the project of building a leather and glass shop out of a timber frame in the craft village. This is the, these are the first two new shops that we have added to the craft village in 15 years. We elected to erect a 30,000 square foot craft and event pavilion after all of that, as if we hadn't done enough already. This is the Heritage Center, and it was finished just in time for the fair. The pavilion was able to handle the 500 voices and musicians who shared their music from a stage that could accommodate both the fair and Christmas crowds. For the first time in 36 years, we extended the fair to three weekends and served around 20,000 guests during the event. Some would say we were gluttons for punishment. Others would say we were inspired and nobody could stop us. But that's just on the practical front. On the ministry front, we held five conferences around the world and experienced revival and ministry in dozens of new and familiar countries. Uh, we celebrated our 50th anniversary, uh, the Jubilee Conference and event. We walked through brand new doors, saw new churches established, and faced unprecedented challenges. But we clung to God's grace until His love and mercy brought us through it all. Through it all, the song says, we've learned to trust in Jesus. We've learned to trust in God. And I do believe we're coming out of this past year with more of that trust, with more of that reliance on God. We are still caught in times filled with swift transition. And as the song says, none on earth unmoved can stand. But in that movement of unavoidable transition, we are all changing. We may be changing in bad ways. Hopefully we're changing in good ways, learning and ever growing in our dependence on God and each other. Everything is changing every day. The world right now looks different than it did a year ago this week. The nation of Israel is at war. Prophecies are presenting. Ugly anti-Semitism is emerging in our own country. Gold is refining in some hearts, and grace is unfolding for those who seek it. Never in our nation's history have the dividing lines between left and right, Christian and secular, been more charged with tension and hostility. These dividing lines surge and spark, bursting into flames like fallen power lines on a wet road. Believers are awakening to the dogmatism taught in the schools. They are perceiving the anti-Semitism endemic in academia. The swift transitions demand that families ask questions about how to raise their children, how to raise their food, how to have relational security. And these are the right questions because they lead toward Jesus 
and they lead toward the body of Christ. So in all of the trouble, I see hope. I think that God is doing more in the hearts of his people in Israel than has perhaps happened in decades right now amidst this conflict. The church is intended to be God's unshakable fortress on a hill, secured not through mortar and steel, fear or violence, but through the unbreakable bonds of trust found only in covenant love. The church that Jesus builds is the only enduring bulwark and bastion against the authority of evil, what he called the gates of hell, which he promised would not prevail against the church. All the global and social conflicts, violence and upheaval, electrifying the atmosphere with a call to change can be heard by anyone who has their ear open. But what will we change? To answer that, we must understand what our vulnerability is and what our protection is. I would submit that our vulnerability is deception, buying into the mantras and narratives of selfishness, fear, blaming, and independence that undergird all the fracturing, dividing forces tearing at the body of Christ today. Soldiers are only made into an army by conforming to a higher order and design for arranging them. And the body of Christ will only become God's intended united force for good when it overcomes its independence and submits to a comprehensive design given by God for ordering us as a cohesive unit, a fitly framed people held together as one body by what every joint and ligament supplies. Fear and independence are repelling forces driving us out of oneness with the body, out of love, and out of a vision of wholeness that could draw us closer together, grafting us into the secret place of the Most High. What is that secret place? Is it the dark corner of your concrete bunk bunker? <laughs> is it your pantry stocked with enough dry goods? or your cabinet with medical equipment? What is that secret place? Is it a gun cabinet? No, that secret place is the body of Christ because that's the only kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is the only shelter that will endure, the only source of supply that will never run dry. It holds the only water that will quench our thirst so that we never thirst again, the only food that comes from above, manna from heaven and our daily bread. Secularism and humanism have ascended to dominance, displaying far greater unity than can be found in the church today. God poignantly stated at the Tower of Babel, if they, humankind, agree and put their mind to anything, nothing they plan will be impossible for them. This is God acknowledging that unity is the prerequisite for power. But he's talking about those unifying behind the wrong kind of project. Modernity and the advent of AI and all of these other developments, this is a kind of unity, unprecedented, and it is going to bring forth a kind of power or a tower of Babel. But there's a counterpart that we're supposed to discover in the church. Jesus does not promise that the gates of hell will not overpower an individual, nor even a single family, nor even a single fellowship. He makes this promise about 
the church, which Paul tells us is the body of Christ. But there is no body of Christ until the members come together, held together by what every joint and ligament supplies. My prayer for 2024 is, God, help the members of the body, the bones and joints to find each other, those who want to pull together. Today, we have the constituent elements of a unified church, but they are fractured and divided, celebrating their isolation and independence in the name of freedom in Christ. Christians have little power in the face of spiritual tsunamis overwhelming their tiny islands of personal convictions. People are tossed about, carried by every wind, confused, led astray as children. I would submit that only a rebirth of what we imagine church to be can answer this. And as the times get worse, we're going to reconsider what we've taken for granted. As the evening gets darker, we're going to look for a light. I would say that only a vibrant expression of the fivefold ministry that harmonizes local and mobile leadership into one cohesive team can bring about a restoration of the church comparable to the work of Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, Haggai, and Malachi. Those are just five pivotal men who were instrumental in coordinating the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple after they left Babylon back in that day. And we're going to see not just five men, but teams of the fivefold ministry coming together all over the world and working as one team, as one hand, the right hand of God, so that the church can stop being tossed about, as Ephesians 4 says is only remedy to the fivefold ministry. But that is the promise. When Babylon begins to shake and turn on the people of God, they will remember Zion. The darkness of turbulent times holds a promise in its shadows. And what is that promise? That promise is found in Zechariah 14.7. It says, at evening time, there will be light. Isaiah says, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. God, raise the lamp, raise the light. Let it shine brighter than ever before. I was thinking this past week of how Colossians 1, in Colossians 1, Paul says that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And what's, what gets me is that he makes God's beloved son, the love of God, the opposite of darkness. And this makes me think of what John says in his epistle when he says that whoever does not love his brother abides in the darkness and he does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. But then he says, whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And I just think that there's something very powerful when we consider the love of the brethren as the light that tells us where we're going. I can't find personal meaning apart from the body of Christ. Until I find the people who I can love and who can love me, I can't know where I'm going and I can't stop stumbling. This individualism is a dead end. So we feel the shaking and we sense the tremors of transition. Go ahead and perceive the need for change and growth, but be careful how you act on that impetus to change. 
Let these shakings move you toward your brothers, toward the body of Christ, toward greater unity, love, and power. Every kingdom and polity on earth can be categorized as a democracy or a republic or an oligarchy or a theocracy or a monarchy and all the other archies. These terms describe the order or system of authority and therefore how the responsibility is delegated within these units. But the kingdom of God, what is it? Is it a monarchy? Is it an oligarchy? Is it a theocracy? Is it a democracy? No, it's not. The kingdom of God is entirely different. It is a fatherhood. That's what it is. Fatherhood is the essential element of the kingdom of God. Suppose you accept that the church is the secret place of the Most High, the kingdom that cannot be shaken. In that case, you must invest in fatherhood more than in any other effort, knowing that the kingdom's flourishing or demise directly results from fatherhood and its reality or absence. This is why the whole story began with the education and forming of a father, Father Abraham. About Abraham, the Lord said, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the ways of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So God chose this man because of the way he would direct his children and his household. And God will choose you to be part of his purpose and to advance his kingdom based on the way you will direct your children and your household. God had a very focused, intentional design and goal behind his relationship with Abraham. He wanted the man to guide his children. And so now we know what the devil's plan is. He wants men to stop guiding their children and directing their households because this is what the revolution is based on. The Yahweh's love coming through the patterns that fathers give to sons. This is how the revolution began and this is how the revolution will succeed when men let God turn them into fathers. What is the single common denominator and corollary between all the social dysfunctions among youth in our day? It is fatherhood. If you've listened to my seminars at the fair or really for the past several years, I quote pages of statistics that show that the corollary between crime, drug abuse, economic and educational breakdown, uh, institutionalization, all of it is tied together by the absence of fatherhood. Fatherhood has been systematically assaulted because it represents a non-compulsory form of authority, the only authority not derived from state power, but from God. My father often taught us to see fatherhood through the lens of two ancient words for father. One is abu, and the other is pater. The first word abu means to decide. The second is the root of the word pattern. These two ancient words suggest that being a father is about being a decision maker and a pattern giver. Believers, if this is what God is calling you to, 
This is what the enemy is going to try to help you avoid. He's going to try to give you hiding places from making decisions. Hiding places, excuses for not bringing God's patterns into your family. But God will choose you based on how you guide your children and how you lead your household. This is what we must become in our own homes through our walk with the Holy Spirit if we would see the kingdom of God emerge around us. Every other change we seek is minimal and perhaps a distraction compared to the importance of fatherhood. And so it is the enemy's business to get fathers chasing every peripheral alteration in their lives and families other than the central transformation God is truly calling them to. How do we become fathers? We first have to become sons. We first have to find that relationship with God through the Spirit and that relationship with God's people that will express His fathering love, discipline, and guidance into our lives. Because it is in becoming sons that we know what it means to be a father. We perceive the upheaval in the world as grand and upsetting. But as fathers, we want decisive, flashy changes in our own lives to give, give us a sense of regained security. We don't want to sit down and say, I need to learn how to make decisions. I need to learn how to set patterns. I need to learn to be a watchman on, my, on the wall of my family. I need to learn to be a king and priesthood over my own life and my own soul and my own family. We don't want to get on our knees and put shoes on our faith and actions to our words and strive daily to become the change that we seek. No, we want something quick. We want to change our lives and our families like the world offers medicine. Give me a pill that I can pop. Give me some decisive thing that I can do and be done with this. Unwittingly, we can deploy one cure after another, one change after another, imagining that we are escaping the culture of Babylon. But the essence of Babylon is deception. And the essence of that deception is a lie that others, not you, are responsible for the dysfunction in your life. Think about it. Babylon is called Mystery Babylon, but where did it all begin? Where did the concept of cities begin? It began with Cain, right? And what was the essential lie that drove Cain's terrible actions and choices? God told Cain that if he did what was right, his unhappiness would be remedied. Think about it. What is God saying? He's saying, Cain, wipe the pout off your face. You're the problem. And if you'll do what's right, you're going to be happy again. He's basically saying, don't look at me, Cain, and don't look at Abel. Look at yourself. You can change and get a different result. God was trying to insist to the self-pitiful man that he was the author of his own misery. But Cain makes no effort to change the nature or level of his sacrifice. No, he doesn't make any attempt to alter himself in response to God's rebuke. Instead, he founded a new world built on the lie that others are to blame for my misery. And that lie turned hatred into murder and murder into a city and a city into a world that can be typified as Babylon. That's the deception. 
a refusal to take responsibility. In examining the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or the racial tensions emerging around the world and in our own nation, or the class warfare raging back and forth, really for the whole past century in the communist and social revolutions, what do we see? We see the same founding principle of Cain at work. The same belief that I am not responsible, and so I'm going to envy somebody who has what I don't have, and I'm going to start this vicious cycle of blaming and envying and ultimately murdering my brother. The biblical account of Israel's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, a journey that should have taken 12 days, serves as an additional analogy of how we can make the wrong changes in our lives. The Israelites grumbled and complained during this period, reflecting on their past life in Egypt or expressing their impatience for not entering the Promised Land. You think about it, they either complained and said, let us go back, or they complained and said, why haven't you let us cross over? And we can do the same thing to God. We can say, God, I, I miss how simple life was back in the world that I left. Or we can say, I thought I was going to have a life that looked like this or like that. Why hasn't that unfolded? This delay can be seen as a period designed to bring about transformation. Or it can be seen as a period where God is just toying with us. I don't think that's what God was doing. I don't think he was testing them and torturing their faith. I think it echoes what Paul says to the Corinthians, flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And there are times in our lives where God has promised something wonderful, but we're not ready to take it without destroying it with a touch. And so he says, you're going to have to go through a wilderness, not to get you out of Egypt, but to get Egypt out of you. God's intention was not to torment the Israelites, but to prepare them spiritually for the promised land and ultimately for eternity. And if there are any delays in your dreams or what you feel God has promised you, try to find the constructive intent that God has behind that delay. He loves you. Your father knows that you need all these things that you ask for. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But he also knows that the flesh cannot take possession of it without destroying it. So if there is a delay, let's become intentional about getting that grumbling, complaining spirit out of us. This preparation involves transformation into the image of God. As he says, God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. The wilderness experience for, in our spiritual journey is not about God forgetting us or even just testing us. It's about God producing the patience that produces the character that gives us real hope. Only hope that comes from character is, is worth anything. All the other hopes are fantasies. But the character that endures brings forth patience. And that patience brings forth a reason for hope. In 2024, I believe the message is to embrace personal responsibility and spiritual growth. 
move, moving away from blaming external factors or seeking quick fixes. I believe it's time to acknowledge that God is not forbidding me from crossing the Jordan for no reason. And I can't tell him that I'd be different if you would just let me cross. But instead, the delay signifies that there is a deepening in my own walk with him, in my love for my family, in my love for my brothers and sisters, in my walk in the spirit that is required. And if the change will happen here, then he will tell me I can cross the Jordan. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This shows us that we have to take the step. We have to assume responsibility, even for the distance we feel from God. Embracing this path of personal transformation and obedience to God's word prepares us to enter our promised land, a life of wholeness, of simplicity, of fruitfulness, of peace. God desired for the Israelites to be ready for the promised land and he desires for us to be spiritually prepared for the blessings and responsibilities he has in store. And one day he's going to tell us, come and gather at the Jordan by tribes and families and take your little ones. And when you put your first foot in, those waters are going to divide. But let's not complain, even while we're here in the wilderness. Let's not resent God or Moses and Joshua. Let's acknowledge that these exceedingly great and precious promises require some intensive preparation. And let's enjoy that preparation as God's patience toward us, equipping us to take possession of His blessings without destroying them. By allowing God to work in us through His Spirit and grace, we ready ourselves to cross our own Jordans and enter into the rest and peace and place He has ordained. And may that be our task and focus in 2024. Where do I go? Yes. When there's nobody else to turn to. And who do I talk to? Oh. When nobody wants to listen. And who do I leave? I go to the rock, I know he's able, I go to the rock, yes I do, I go to the rock of my salvation, I go to the stone that the builders rejected, I run to the mountain, and the mountain stands by me, when the earth all around me is sinking sand, on Christ the solid rock I storms of life are threatening and where do I run to? Oh, when the winds of sorrow blow and is there a refuge in those times of tribulation and when my soul needs consolation I go to the rock I go to the rock of my salvation I go Rejected. I go to the mountain. 
for you. We send you greetings, all of you, our brothers and sisters around the world. You've blessed God and us. You've done honor to his name by being faithful in all the places where you serve. We think we have it hard here in the U.S., but that makes us remember you, brothers and sisters in Israel and India, New Zealand and South Africa and Paraguay and Argentina and Netherlands and all over the world. We haven't forgotten you. God hasn't forgotten you. He's with you. Amen. And whatever the dreams are that he has put in your heart, they're not, they're not delaying for no reason. Let's get focused on the internal changes and believe that the Jordan crossing will get closer through that process. God bless you. Mm-hmm.